The following sermon, entitled Christ's Gift of Shepherd Teachers, 20th in the series on the Book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of May 29th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's turn once again this evening to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. We will read the first 16 verses. The text for this evening's sermon will be verses 11 through 13. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things." And He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait in deceit, to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We enter Scripture reading at that point. The text for this evening's sermon is verses 11-13. through 13. And He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In our series on the book of Ephesians, we have come to the second half in which the Spirit of Christ takes the truths that were established in the first half and now applies them. That is, He gives the practical implications that flow from everything we learned in the first three chapters. In this second half, the Spirit led the Apostle Paul to begin by applying the truth of our unity. We are one in Jesus Christ. And out of that oneness, that fundamental unity, came the calling to manifest and to maintain that unity. It was in that connection that the Apostle Paul then went on to talk about the various gifts, that is the talents, the abilities, that the ascended Lord Jesus Christ gives to His people. And we saw the connection back to the calling to keep the unity in that it's as we use the gifts, the talents, and abilities that Christ has given to us for the edification of the body of Christ that the church is knit together, that 
we then manifest and maintain that unity. Having talked about the gifts that our Ascended Lord bestows upon His church, He moves now from the general to a more specific, a more narrow application. He focuses on one of those gifts in particular, namely, the office bearers that He gives to the church. And now here we're using the term gift not so much as a synonym of talents and abilities, but gift in the general sense of the word of something freely given to another without any sort of payment. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The talents and abilities we talked about last time. And now also this. The gift of men to serve as office bearers, especially in the office of pastor and teacher. And so tonight we look at this passage using as our theme, Christ's gift of shepherd teachers. Christ's gift of shepherd teachers. First, we'll look at the office. Second, we will look at the purpose. And third, at the goal. This passage of Scripture speaks of various offices in the church. And you'll notice it it mentions offices such as apostles and prophets and evangelists. And there are other New Testament passages that likewise speak of these offices. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. And now when we read these passages, sometimes we are left wondering, well, what happened to the apostles being office bearers in the church? Why is it that as a congregation we do not have prophets and evangelists as a part of our church council? Well, to answer that question, the Reformed faith has distinguished between what are called the extraordinary offices in the church and the ordinary offices in the church. The first three mentioned here in Ephesians 4, verse 12 are the extraordinary offices in the church. Apostles, prophets, and evangelists. The apostles are those who are sent out with a commission by Jesus Christ Himself. It's referring to the twelve apostles and the Apostle Paul. Men who could bear witness to Christ's resurrection and could testify of that truth to others and were even given the gift of performing miracles to confirm that Word. Next, the Apostle Paul speaks of prophets. And these were New Testament office bearers who were given a special gift for the expounding of Scripture. But more than just explaining Scripture, these prophets were often given direct revelation from God. That is, these men were organs of inspiration themselves. And sometimes that included even being given insights into the future. Perhaps you remember the prophet Agabus that we read about twice in the book of Acts who was able to foretell the great famine was coming. And then he was able to foretell the Apostle Paul that when you get to Jerusalem, you are going to be bound and imprisoned. He was a New Testament prophet. Third, the Spirit speaks of evangelists. And now the evangelists are a little more difficult to define carefully. But it seems that the evangelists were those companions of the apostles who were fellow workers with the apostles. The assistants to these men who sometimes labored side by side with the apostles and other times were sent by the apostles to go and do mission work. We can think of men like Titus and Timothy and Silas and Mark and many others. Those men were evangelists. So three different offices are mentioned here. Apostles, prophets, and evangelists. 
And we refer to these as the extraordinary offices in the New Testament church. And we speak of them that way because these men were given extraordinary gifts. They were given the ability to perform miracles. Many of them were given direct revelation from God. They could write the inspired sacred Scriptures. They also are the extraordinary office bearers because they had an extraordinary calling. That is, they were not called to be office bearers in a particular congregation, but they were really office bearers to the churches in general, to the churches in common. That brings us back to the question, why then do we not have such office bearers? Well, the simple answer is that nowhere in the New Testament is there any warrant for supposing that these offices were to be passed down to others. That is, there's no indication that these men were to appoint successors to take their place and continue their role. What is more, when we're talking about the office of apostle, the reality is that there's no one who meets the qualifications to be an apostle anymore. Because to be an apostle meant you had to have seen the risen Savior Jesus Christ. You had to receive your office immediately directly from Him. Being an apostle meant you were given the the power, the ability to perform miracles. Those were the qualifications of being an apostle. And quite frankly, there's no one who meets those qualifications. So there are no more apostles in the church of Christ. And because the office of evangelist was connected to the office of apostle, when the, apostle, when the office of apostle fell away, so did the office of evangelist. And as for prophets, well, we no longer have a need for them because we have the inspired sacred Scriptures written down for us. So the, apostle, the office of prophet also fell away. That does not mean we are left without office bearers. Because though we no longer have the extraordinary offices in the church, we do have the ordinary ones. And by the ordinary offices, we have in view the ones that we are all familiar with. The minister who preaches the Word and who administers the sacraments. The elders who rule in the church of Christ. And the deacons who gather the alms, and distribute them to the poor. These are the ordinary offices because these men are given ordinary gifts. They are given gifts in the sense of talents and abilities, but they're not enabled to perform miracles. They don't, do not receive direct revelation from God. Their gifts are ordinary. And what is more, they have an ordinary calling The calling does not come from Christ Himself, but it comes from Christ through the church as the church extends a lawful call to each one of these men. And these men then serve in the local congregation. And we do still have ministers, elders, and deacons because in contrast to the extraordinary offices where there's no indication that they were to be passed on, we do have clear New Testament evidence that the ordinary offices were to be passed on. We read of Paul going from church to church, ordaining elders in every church. In Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, he gives lists of qualifications for men to enter into the office of minister, elder, and deacon. And the clear implication is, Men are to be put into these offices. They are to continue. So whereas the extraordinary offices have ceased, the ordinary offices continue. They are the permanent offices in the New Testament church. But now we want to focus in on the specific ordinary office that stands out here in this passage. Verse 11 says, "...and He gave some..." apostles and some prophets and some evangelists. We've explained those three. And now he adds, and some 
pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. And now when we come to that phrase, we are confronted with a question, are these two distinct offices? Or are they one and the same? Within the history of, and within Reformed history, there have been many who have said these are two distinct offices. This was the view of John Calvin, for example, and because John Calvin's view carries weight, this view, his view, was influential at the Synod of Dort, so that when the Synod of Dort wrote a church order, that church order called for four New Testament offices. Elders, deacons, ministers, professor. And that distinguishing between minister and professor as two distinct separate offices is ultimately due to Calvin's interpretation of saying pastors and teachers are two distinct offices. There's the pastors, the ministers of the Gospel, and there are those teachers, those professors of theology. Well, the reality is we must respectfully disagree with Calvin and even the Synod of Dort in their understanding of this passage because the reality is pastors and teachers are one and the same office. And the proof is found here in this passage. Notice the language and how this verse is put. Verse 11 reads, "...and He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and now we do not read, and some pastors and some teachers." But instead, the end of the verse just says, "...and some pastors and teachers." And in the Greek, it's even clearer. And the idea is, this is one and the same office. The one who is a pastor is at the same time one who is a teacher. And it's with that understanding that one of the few changes we have made to that church order that's been handed down to us from the Synod of Dort is that the article that used to say there are four office bearers in the New Testament church now says there's three. Minister, elder, and deacon. So one office. But now what does this have to teach us about that office? Well, there are two important words here, each of which is instructive. The minister of the Gospel is both a pastor and a teacher. That is, a pastor means he is a shepherd to the sheep. That's the idea of pastor here. He's the one who lives among the sheep, who must know the sheep, who cares for the sheep. It's the calling of the pastor to feed and to nourish the flock. It's the calling of the pastor to lead them and to guide them, to direct them in the right path. And it's the calling of the pastor to guard them, to protect them from the many enemies that come upon the flock. A minister is a pastor. And he's also a teacher. It's for good reason that one of the qualifications of an office bearer is that he be apt to teach. Because that's the most fundamental aspect of his calling, of his labor. He must be instructing God's people in the truths of God's Word. What we sang in Psalter number 337 must be true of a minister. Thy Word by faithful lips proclaimed to simplest minds the truth conveys. And it's by His teaching, it's by His instruction that a minister fulfills his calling as a pastor, as a, a shepherd. How does he feed? How does he lead? How does he guard the sheep? He does so by instructing them, by teaching them the truths of God's Word. So what this passage is teaching us about the office of a minister is that he is a pastor and a teacher at the same time. And this must be our view concerning ministers. This must be our expectation as elders and as a congregation. The minister is not the CEO of the church. The minister's calling is not to fix all the problems in the community around him. 
He's not a business manager. He's not the one who does the marketing for the church. He's a pastor and a teacher. And as a congregation, this must always be our expectation for our ministers. As elders in the congregation, this must be what you require of your minister. That he does not become distracted by all these peripheral matters, but that his focus, his attention is on being a pastor and a teacher in this local congregation. That's the office that is given to the church. But now that it's given, means there's one who's giving it. And the giver of this office is the ascended Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That's how the verse begins. And He gave. Let's not miss those three important words. And Christ, our ascended Lord, gave this office. He gave this office out of His own love and care for the church as the One who is our chief shepherd and teacher. You see, this office of a minister as it's set forth in this passage is but a dim reflection of the office of Christ Himself. It's not even that Christ is the fulfillment of this office. No. Christ is the office bearer. And these other offices are reflections of His office. That's true of all of these really. For Christ is the Apostle. We read of that in Hebrews 3, verse 1, for example. Consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. He is our Apostle in that He was sent of the Father with a a commission, with a specific work to perform. Christ is our chief prophet. In that He, having received God's Word as being the One who is the Word of God Himself, now brings that Word to His people. That was true of His entire ministry as He instructed God's people. And it's true even now as our prophet in heaven is that He teaches us through His Word and His Spirit. What this illustrates is that these offices are really derived from Christ Himself. And that holds especially true of this office as it's described here in this passage. That of shepherd and teacher. Christ is the Good Shepherd. He told us as much in John chapter 10. I am the Good Shepherd. And in that chapter, there are especially two things that stand out about His work as our shepherd. First, as our shepherd, He knows His sheep. Verse 14 of John 10, I am the Good Shepherd and know My sheep and am known of Mine. He knows them with the knowledge of love. He's known them from all eternity. And this is not just some general love about sheep so that He knows all about the characteristics of sheep but it's a personal love and knowledge. He knows you by name, child of God. He knows how you are distinct, how you are unique from every other sheep. And it's with that knowledge that He cares for us. That He then leads us and protects us and feeds us His people. As our shepherd, He knows us. That first of all. Secondly, what John 10 emphasizes is that as our shepherd, He lays down His life for us. John 10, verses 11 and 12. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd giveth His life for the sheep. And it will go on And that chapter goes on to say another three times that as our shepherd, Christ is the one who lays down His life for His sheep. That is, He's not like the hireling 
who when the wolves come runs away. He does not sacrifice the sheep in order to save his own skin, but he lays down his life. He, he subjected himself to death so that his sheep might have life. And this was not just any death. It was not the death of wolves coming upon a man. It was the death of the cross. The painful death of the cross. The bitter and shameful death of the cross. And worst of all, the accursed death of the cross. For it was at the cross that He died in the truest and fullest sense of the word and that He died spiritually. He suffered the the agonies and the torments of hell. But though even though this was an accursed death, nevertheless, His death was at the same time a voluntary death. He laid down His life for His sheep. He did this willingly, voluntarily, of His own accord out of His love for His sheep. Christ is the Good Shepherd. And He's also our teacher. Pastors and teachers. The teacher part is likewise derived from Christ. And here there's certainly overlap with the fact that He is our chief prophet. But nevertheless, it's still worth noting this. He came into this world to teach us. To teach us to teach us concerning the Father. First, Christ Himself testifies He came to reveal, to make known the Father unto us. And not only did He teach us concerning the Father, He taught us the way to the Father. For He said in no uncertain terms, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by Me. And as those who have been brought to the Father through Jesus Christ, He also teaches us concerning His kingdom and what it is to live as citizens in His kingdom. And it's in part, it's by His teaching, by His instruction, that He in part fulfills His office as pastor, as shepherd. This is how He feeds us. This is how He directs us. This is how He guards us from our enemies. Christ is the shepherd teacher. And now out of His love and concern, out of His care for the flock, one of the gifts that He gives to the church is men to serve on His behalf. He gives pastors and teachers. That is, He gives the office itself. This is a part of His rule as the ascended Lord that He determined that there would be these ordinary offices that would be passed on from one man to the next. And what is more, He not only gives the office, He he gives the men who then fill those offices. He's the one who calls them. He did that directly, immediately with the apostles. And He's still the one who calls Ministers, elders, and deacons. He just does so through the church as the church extends a lawful call to them. But either way, He's the one who's sovereignly appointing these men to their office. He not only gives the office, He not only gives the men to serve in that office, but He gives the gifts and the abilities to those men. He equips the office bearers so that they're qualified to carry out their duties. And now, it's in light of this, the fact that it's our ascended Lord, the shepherd teacher, who gives shepherd teachers to function on His behalf, that there are two implications that we need to draw out from this passage. First, on the one hand, it means the calling of shepherd teachers such as myself is to point God's people to the shepherd teacher. 
That is the content, the substance of the teaching of a minister must be Christ crucified. As another minister said recently from this pulpit, the calling of a minister is, as it were, to stand here and hold a giant mirror so that you all can see Christ reflected in that mirror. And the reason for that is because Christ is the one who cares for and provides for the sheep. He's the only one who can satisfy the longings of our souls. And so, the minister does not give himself, but he points the people to their Savior, Jesus Christ. That, first of all, is the implication. Second, the implication of this is that Ministers who are faithful in this respect are a gift from Christ Himself. And now let me assure you, no minister wants to make this point in a sermon. Just as ministers are reluctant to preach on a passage that calls for the congregation to provide for the minister, So there's a bit of reluctance in making this point of application, but it is a part of the text. And out of a commitment to being faithful to what the passage teaches us, we draw out this application. That when Christ gives shepherd teachers to the church, they are to be viewed as a gift. They're to be received that way in thankfulness. And now the thankfulness is not to the man himself, but the thankfulness is to Christ, the one who gave this man to serve on his behalf. And what gifts he has given to Hope Protestant Reformed Church in her 90 years of existence. Began all the way back in 1932 when he gave this congregation her first shepherd teacher, Reverend Voss, who labored faithfully for ten years in a fledgling congregation that had just come out of the Christian Reformed Church. And after Voss left, he gave Reverends DeBoer and Reverend Vermeer And though it was during the latter's ministry that the split of 1953 occurred and many left, in fact the majority left, so that this congregation had to be reconstituted as a local congregation, Christ continued to care for it because He sent additional men. He sent Kuiper and Veldman. He sent Hanko and camps. He sent Reverend Quartering, who though, even though he was here for only a brief time, was nevertheless a faithful shepherd teacher. And then he sent other men. Names that the majority of us are still familiar with. He sent Cole. He sent Den Hartog. He sent Vanderwall. He sent Heisinga. So that in the history of this congregation, there have been 13 different men who have served as Shepherd teachers. And the implication of the text is that they are gifts from Christ Himself. And now Christ gives these gifts with a specific purpose in mind. Really, a twofold purpose. And that purpose is expressed in verse 12. Why does Christ give these men? This is why. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And now, you will notice I said there's a twofold purpose here. And having said that, we need to explain the, the structure of verse 12. In our King James Bibles, there are two commas indicating that the King James translation has in view three things for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body. I believe it's best 
if in our minds we remove that first comma. So that we read it simply this way, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, comma, and now here's the second purpose, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the first purpose of Christ in giving shepherd teachers is for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. And now, when it speaks of the perfecting of the saints, it's talking about rendering them fit, complete, sound. And sometimes this means restoring them. Repairing them. Mending them even. And we say that because this word perfecting is used, for example, of the disciples repairing mending, restoring their nets. And Christ gave shepherd teachers for that very purpose. To help restore the wayward sinner. To heal the broken heart. And to bind up the wounded soul. That's a part of this perfecting of the saints. But more than just restoring and healing, the idea is that of equipping, training, making them fit, strengthening them. So the idea is not only that the saints are able to leave the sick ward, if we can speak that way, but they're ready to go out, to be engaged, to be active. And that too is why Christ gave shepherd teachers for the strengthening of God's people, for the equipping of them. And specifically, the saints are being perfected for the work of the ministry. And here we see the need to combine these two aspects for the perfecting of the saints. In what sense? For the work of the ministry. That's what He's making us fit and complete for. Because the work of the ministry here is not referring to the work of the minister of the Gospel, his preaching labors and his administering of the sacraments, but the work of the ministry in the sense of the work of service. That's really what that word ministry means. It simply means to serve. And it has in view the service of all of God's people to whom He's given gifts, abilities, talents, and thereby equipped us so that we can take those abilities and use them in the advant- for the advantage and salvation of the other members of the body. And it's the purpose, Christ's purpose in giving shepherd teachers so that the church is equipped to serve that way. So the church has the desire to serve one another for Shepherd teachers must point the congregation to the shepherd teacher who came not to be served by others, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. The shepherd teacher behind this pulpit points the congregation to the shepherd teacher who is willing to get down on his hands and his knees to wash the feet of his disciples. And it's when we see the shepherd teacher that we then want to serve one another out of love for our Savior, out of gratitude for His saving work on our behalf. It's Christ's purpose in giving shepherd teachers to the congregation so that they are perfected, so that they're equipped for the work of the ministry. That, first of all, is His purpose. The second purpose is expressed in the second half of the verse where He says, for the edifying of the body of Christ. For the building up of the body of Christ. Because that's the literal idea of that word to edify. It comes from the verb that means to build. And the idea then is that of promoting growth. Of strengthening the members of the church. And specifically, we need to be built up. We need to be edified in our faith. For while we do believe in Jesus Christ, at times that faith is weak. At times it even becomes inactive 
for a period. Not that we lose the gift itself, but that we're not exercising the gift of faith. And because that can be true, we need to be edified. We need to have our faith strengthened. And it's for that purpose that Christ, the ascended Lord, gave shepherd teachers to point the congregation to the object of their faith. It's because when, because when we behold the object of our faith, Jesus Christ Himself, that that faith is strengthened. It's revitalized. It becomes stronger. So why did Christ give shepherd teachers to the church? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ, especially in their faith. From this twofold purpose that we see in this passage, there are two lessons that we can learn. So the first half of the second point, the two purposes, the second half of the second point, the two lessons. First, when Christ gives gifts, and now here we revert to abilities, talents. That's the idea of gifts now. When Christ gives gifts to the church, they are to be used not in the service of self, but for the body. Did you notice that in verse 12? Why did Christ give these offices for the perfecting of the saints? And then in the second half of the verse, for the edifying of the body of Christ. These gifts are to be used in the service of others. And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. For example, 1 Peter 4, verse 10 as every man hath received the gift, even so minister, that is, serve the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When Christ gives talents, abilities, gifts to His people, they're not to be used in the service of self. They're not for the sake of promoting oneself, for making a name for oneself but they're to be pressed into the service of the body. To be used for the advantage and salvation of all in the church. And that's true when Christ gives gifts and abilities to office bearers. The purpose is not so that the office bearer can promote himself. It's not so that he can gain the praise of men. But so that he can serve. And the same applies to every one of us because remember, in the previous section, verses 7-10, through 10, we had in view the gifts that God gives to all of His people. Every one of us has received different gifts. How are we using them? Are we using them to serve ourselves? for our own advancement? Or are we using them for the saints? For the body of Christ? The first lesson we see from verse 12 is that we are to use them for the spiritual good of one another. The second lesson that we learn from this expressed purpose is once again the importance of the ministry. For what is clearly implied here is that the main way that Christ Himself perfects the saints and edifies His own body is by instructing them. It's by teaching them. It means that if we are going to be spiritually healthy as individuals or as a congregation, we need regular, we need constant instruction. And that's true exactly because Christ ordained it this way. In His care for the church, He determined He would perfect the saints. He would edify His body by teaching them. And now this passage is telling us He's going to use 
especially shepherd teachers, to give that instruction. And all of this points us to the importance of the Gospel ministry. It means we must never allow the preaching to become a peripheral matter. But it must be central in the life of the church. It must be central in our worship services. This means that as a congregation, we must be diligent in attending to the means of grace. Coming here to hear God's Word so that we might receive this instruction. This means when, for example, we need help on a a different level, when we need that one-to-one care from the minister or from the elders, we should never stiff-arm the shepherd teachers who are trying to help us but we're to receive them as they come trying to help us. And this also means, let me back up, this is also a reminder, therefore, of the urgent need that we have as a denomination for ministers. At this present time, in our denomination, there are five vacant congregations. A vacant congregation is a congregation without their own pastor. Another has just had his emeritation, his retirement approved, so that will make six. One of the congregations in our denomination is seeking to call a domestic missionary, so that means we have a need right now for seven ministers. Where do those ministers come from? They come from the seminary. Well, of the, of the current seminary students, that is, in the yet last four years, the two who will be graduating this summer, neither of them are going to be ministers in churches in our denomination. Both will serve the Lord willing in sister churches in other foreign lands. The next three classes down, each had only one student in them. So that means in three years' time, we will have added three ministers. Right now, we need seven. In the meantime, others will retire. We have an urgent need for ministers. And so young men in the congregation, consider whether God would have you to serve as a shepherd Teacher, pray about it. Seek His will. Do so recognizing the importance of this office. And as a congregation, let us be praying to the shepherd teacher that He would provide for us, that He would give us additional Shepherd teachers. And let us also pray for the shepherd teachers He has given to us. That He preserves them. That He preserves them from committing a grievous sin that would disqualify them from their office. That He would preserve them from burning out and breaking down on account of weariness. Because this passage of Scripture underscores the importance of shepherd teachers as Christ's own way to perfect the saints and to edify His own body. That's His purpose. And He also has a goal in view. And that goal in giving these office bearers to the church is expressed in verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Say this is expressing the goal in light of the language. The first few words, until we all come. That word come has the idea of attaining something. It has the idea of reaching a goal. It's expressing the ideal. And so we say verse 13 is setting forth the goal. 
And there's really two main goals here. One that's more of an approximate goal and one that's the ultimate goal. First goal is that we come to the unity of the faith and knowledge. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And now when it speaks of faith here, the unity of faith, it's talking about faith in the objective sense of the word that is the content of faith. That which we believe. We say that in contrast to what we saw earlier in the chapter in verse 5. Verse 5, we read, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the idea of one faith is we all have the same gift of faith. That is, we all have been given to believe in Jesus Christ, to know Him and to trust Him. Their faith was being used in the subjective sense of the word with regard to the gift of faith and the sense of saving faith as it comes to manifest itself in a life of faith. Here in verse 13 though, we're talking about that which we believe. For example, we speak of the Reformed faith. The Reformed faith is that system of doctrine that we hold to. That's the idea here. And the goal, the ideal, is that we are brought to, we come to a unity of faith. A oneness of faith. That we all believe and confess the same truths. In that connection, the Spirit inspires Paul to add, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That is, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And this knowledge is not just a, a surface level knowledge, but the Apostle Paul uses a very specific word that refers to a, a deeper knowledge. We're interested in a, a precise and accurate knowledge. And a knowledge specifically of the Son of God. That's striking. Of all of the things that we could know that He could put there as something to be unified in this knowledge, He writes the Son of God. That is, Jesus Christ in human flesh. That's the One whom we need to know. And the goal, the ideal, is that we all have the same knowledge of Him. The same knowledge as to, with regard to who He is and what He did. Having a, a right knowledge according to the Scriptures, but then knowledge in the sense of a personal saving knowledge in Him. And now if we connect this back to Christ's giving of shepherd teachers, we see that Christ Himself gives these shepherd teachers with a view to achieving this goal. Because it's through the work of the ministry that the church is unified in her faith and in her knowledge. That's something that happens Sabbath day to Sabbath day as we sit under the preaching. As we hear a sermon like we did this morning in which we made clear theological distinctions and we Warned against errors. Christ uses that for the unity of the congregation so that we can all walk away saying, I believe that. That's what I hold to. And that has a unifying effect on the congregation. Christ is using shepherd teachers to achieve this goal. And that's also achieved in that if we back up and now tie this to what we talked about in the second point, that the purpose is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, it's the preaching that spurs us on in that labor of love, that service to one another. And it's when we serve one another, when we use our gifts for the good of the body, that too tends to the spiritual unity, the oneness of the congregation. As we enjoy the communion of the saints, each one of us using our gifts for the good of others as that's spurred on by the preaching. So the goal is that we would be one in faith. One in knowledge. This is something 
that we can enjoy already now in this life at least in measure. We can enjoy unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We have that as a congregation. We all hold to the three forms of unity. To the Reformed confessions, we say this is the proper way to understand the Scriptures and the fundamental truths of God's Word. We have that with the other congregations in our denomination. So there's a a measure in which we have this unity here in this life already now. But the reality is that the goal itself will not be attained until we get to heaven. Because even now, we see hundreds of different denominations. We see there's differences in viewpoint on matters. There's disagreements. There's splits in the church. And all of that is a reminder that this oneness, this unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God is something we will enjoy ultimately in the life to come. So the first goal, the proximate goal, is that we be unified spiritually. The second and ultimate goal is expressed in the rest of the verse. Grab the first few words of verse 13, till we all come, and then the second half, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is yet another one of the expressions that's found in this book that really defies explanation. We've had a couple of these that when as a minister you come to it, you think, what on earth does that even mean? That we all come unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The point seems to be that the goal is that we are made like Christ. They say that because if we ask the question, well, who is the perfect man? We all know the answer. It's Christ. And if the goal is that we all come to the perfect man, the idea must be that we are all conformed to the image of God's Son so that we begin to look like Him spiritually. And again, Christ uses shepherd teachers to achieve, to obtain this goal. Because it's by the preaching that Christ sanctifies His people so that we're being molded, so that we're shaped more and more according to His image. It's by having Christ set in front of us. Having Him held up having a mirror held up so that the reflection of Christ is visible to all of us, that we are brought to the perfect man in the sense that we're made to look like Christ Himself. That seems to be the point that's being made here. And again, this is something that we can enjoy already in this life. Because the reality is that in principle, we have been restored to the image of God's Son. God created man in His image. That image was lost in the fall, but now it's restored when we're recreated in the image of His Son. And what's more is Christ is ever at work by His Spirit to mold us, to shape us more and more to that image. So, this begins in this life, but again, the fullness, the reality does not come until we arrive in heaven. It will only be then that we are brought to the perfect man. So two goals. And the beauty of this passage is that Christ Himself will see to it that these goals are attained. Christ Himself will bring us to unity of faith and knowledge. And Christ Himself will bring us 
unto the perfect man. And He will do so through the work of the shepherd teachers He Himself has given to the church. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Apply Thy Word unto our hearts. Cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.